You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. So we've appropriately titled this talk, Should We Move In Together? But really, let's kind of get on the same page as far as terms and what we're meaning when we say the word cohabitation. Because cohabitation really is kind of a spectrum, kind of a grayscale of interaction with someone. So maybe panelists talk about what does, you know, in the conversations you're having with students, with people in your ministry, cohabitation, what does that really mean? What are we talking about when we say cohabitation? Right, cohabitation. I think we, we think about, you know, moving in with your partner. And um, in college, obviously, that's weird. We're all, for the most part, living in dorms or apartments or whatever. And that's not necessarily the question at hand for me, I think the thing that is more, uh, was more relevant in my dating relationship was questions like, do we go on a trip together and um, get an Airbnb and there's one bed at the Airbnb, right? And what, is, what do we do with that? What does that mean? Um, decisions like if I'm staying at his parents' house, you know, how late are we staying up together? What's going on there? You know, there's just, there's this... There's a lot between just like moving in together and, uh, and the space in the middle, right? And, um, you know, are you sleeping over at someone's house a few nights or once a week? Well, you're not living together, but what's going on there? So I think that for me is kind of where the conversation started. For the first questions that I was facing about, am I, how am I going to handle this decision in my own life? I think... Um something else to think about when we think about cohabitation is alongside of that, we're also talking about levels of intimacy within a relationship. And so I think as we go through this series of questions and as you hear our responses, um, obviously the idea of sex will be a part of it, but it's it's not just about sex, but it's about emotional, relational um, intimacy that goes alongside of it. So cohabitation is, yes, one part moving in together, it's the shorthand, but another part of it is actually the level of intimacy and vulnerability that is involved in relationships. Yeah, and so to kind of move forward, Barna, which is a Christian polling group, has done a lot of studies kind of tracking the generational trends, movements, and shifts, and Barna has actually realized that almost half of practicing Christian young adults uh, now think that living together before you're married is a good idea. And so anecdotally, we all know Christians or even AU grads who end up living together before or instead of marriage. And so this really is a cultural shift. I mean, Dee, we joked about you're the oldest one here, and maybe even when you were a student, this was not a question kind of on the horizon. And so, panelists, what do you believe is behind this cultural shift? What's kind of motivating or moving this generation towards normalizing and even saying, this is a good idea? This is a vulnerable question. Uh, my mom's been divorced seven times. My dad has been married and divorced four times. So I think as marriages have been, culture uh, around marriage has been deflating or breaking down, there's a fear of, I I don't want to get divorced, so I'm going to check it all out and make sure we get along and can figure this thing out before we tie the knot. Um, I think that's a huge part. I think also generationally and just... I think just as human beings, we worry about ourselves, right? I don't know about you, but like, it takes a lot of work for me not to think about myself. 
And I think like cohabitation, for me, it would be more convenient in self-protection. It feels less risky, things like that. So as, as the fear of divorce rises, and the more and more I'm concerned about me, and what if I go through a divorce, or what if I lose someone, well, let's just try to like smooth some things to make it doable for me to just test the waters before I lock it in, um, which is valid. But the Bible does speak to things like this, you know. So, so, so Zach, I, I think when I'm hearing you say that, the what's resonating is the fact that we're all in some ways searching for compatibility, and that's not a wrong search. I think for you to know, like with your partner that you eventually find like trying to manage expectations, compatibility, that's not a bad thing. But I think as you're saying, the, the resonance of how we're maybe going a little too far, maybe into extending that search for compatibility. I'd be curious to ask what should be driving or motivating us towards proper searches of compatibility? Are there certain factors, certain ideas? Should it be, like you said, it's all about me in, in kind of the retrospect of com- cohabitation, but what should be some good driving factors for searching out compatibility? Okay, what I'm going to say might fly in the face of what we hear often in contemporary Christian culture, but I don't know if the one is always a helpful way to think about it, because if a man and a woman are following Jesus and are called in a similar direction, and you're seeking to love somebody else more than yourself, you can work it out. And I don't know if two people just come into the world as perfectly compatible. I mean, most of you live with a stranger or someone who was a stranger, right, um, when you came in. And so any, any relationship is going to take work. And one of the beautiful things about marriage is it provides a layer of protection and safety. And I know that Ben and I can talk through hard things and know that we're both committed to staying in the conversation, staying at the table, wrestling through it. So that's, that's what I think about. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've spoken before about, you know, speaking of soulmates, this idea of like there's going to be one perfect person who might arrive as a gift, when really the whole relational process is a gift-giving process, if you want to kind of use that language. And in kind of Christian circles, purity circles, we talk about, you know, sex is the ultimate gift to give someone. But maybe let's back off a little bit and say that, living together with someone is a gift you can give them. So anyone want to speak to how is just living with someone a gift you can give? This is something I say to the dudes that I mentor is it is not hard to find someone you want to have sex with. In fact, many people will settle to have sex with someone. But it is really hard to find someone that you will be 100% vulnerable and safe with. I've had sex with many people, but I've only found one person who can steward my heart. I've only found one person that has proven safe now for 10 years when I lose my crap and when my life falls apart and when I get fired and embarrassed or my wife and I lost our, our second daughter two years ago. And you better believe it that sex was not like the first thing we're thinking about, right? But I'm really glad that we lived together and she could steward me losing my stuff and throwing stuff around and crying and cursing. And I would do the same for her. So I think that's the gift. It's, 
sexual, having sex with someone is very vulnerable. Yeah, there's no hiddenness. But living together, you, you don't, it's, <laughs> this is going to be a joke, and you guys are really quiet, it's Monday. Living together lasts longer than like three minutes, or five minutes, or, <laughs> you know what I mean? No offense to you guys, but... But living together is not this like three minutes of like Casanova music, lights turned down, like, what's up? It's like when your breath stinks, your breath stinks and you like stub your toe and you say a word or you're like kind of a punk to your daughter and your wife watches. Or when you like forget to bring out the trash again and she does it again. You know what I mean? It's, it's actually maybe more vulnerable and it lasts longer. Follow that, bro. <laughs> I don't think anybody can follow that. I will say that I think living together, compatibility, the word compatibility gets used as if it's something that can be achieved. And compatibility is, is not achieved, right? Like if you like hanging out with somebody, you just like hanging out with them. You just like being with them, right? Um, and so marriage, um, a life together, I mean, that is being together, you know, for the rest of your lives. Mm -hmm. But also what is happening inside of that commitment to one another is that over time you are becoming more and more compatible because of the, of the vulnerability, because of the layers of shame that you're stripping off um, by being with one another, uh, by allowing one another to see you in those raw spaces that you, you don't allow other people to see. And oftentimes, physical intimacy is a substitute for those emotional spaces. It's a, it's a substitute for emotional intimacy um, because the physical intimacy helps us feel safe and it helps us feel loved. But yeah, it only lasts two or three minutes in the grand scheme. And, but emotional intimacy is long-lasting. Um, is something that carries over into the next day, into the next week, into the next year. Mm. And that's when compatibility begins to grow. It's not something that's achieved, but it's something that can be grown over time. That's really good. And, and for anyone who's ever maybe been at um, kind of like a white elephant or a kind of dirty Santa game, like when you're giving a gift, there's inherent risk involved. And so we're going to talk about how, you know, the biblical view of a covenant of marriage kind of safeguards this gift giving so that there's not this fear of giving this to someone. But we're going to set the biblical view aside for a second. And let's just talk without any faith perspective, those who are considering cohabitation, living with someone they care about, what should they be thinking about as far as potential risks, things to be concerned about, the reality on the other side of failed cohabitation? What are some just realities without maybe bringing the biblical perspective into it? What should they be considering? So as we kind of already have talked about today, when you're doing life with someone that closely, you're going to become attached to them in one way or another, or many ways. And I think there comes this risk um, that either you're going to get together and get married, or you're going to break apart. And even if you're trying to avoid some of the pain of divorce by testing out marriage, by moving in together, it's, if it doesn't work out, it's still going to be really painful. And so, uh, and I know that in purity culture, 
things can be said out of shame, um, so th this is not where I'm coming from. But in, in relationship, um, for example, with Ben, one of the safeguards, Emily was talking about this earlier, one of the safeguards that I had in my mind was, well, I want to be able to go to his wedding if he's marrying somebody other than me and be able to say to his new wife, like, I loved your husband well and was walking with him as he's becoming more like Jesus and hopefully he's a better husband to you because we spent time together. So I didn't want to feel ashamed. So that was um, practically really helpful for me as I was walking through, like, what does it mean to date well? What does it mean to... Yeah, I think for me, and this sort of became really real for me when one of my close friends was engaged and broke off their engagement a few months before the wedding. But it became real for me too, even just in a long-term relationship, is the reality that you're not married until you're married. Like, you're just not. Dating, the purpose of dating is to figure out if you want to be with someone. And yet, the further you go into a dating relationship, the harder it is to come back out. And I think um, that's just the reality of investing your life in someone who you really care about and who you want to see succeed. But there's an emotional cost with that as well, as those of you who've gone through breakups probably know. Yeah, and, and hopefully this isn't to just scare you away, but right. um, Marissa and I, my wife, we're walking with a couple friends who have been cohabitating year plus and have broken up, and their rationale was like, well, we don't want to get divorced because that would hurt worse. Or they didn't want to get married because divorce would hurt worse. And what they've realized is there is still relational and emotional trauma on the other side of cohabitating and breaking up. I mean, to not say I do doesn't remove the fact that you're starting to unite your life with someone. And so the emotional trauma is still just as real, even if, like she said, you're not married until you're married. But the choice to kind of join into intimacy, to join to, into this journey of like letting the walls of shame down, like there will be on the other side of this real, real um, trauma and, you know, just hurt. And so I, want, I do want to dive into what is the redemptive part of the biblical view now. When we say scripture has something to afford us about proper sexual views or talking about intimacy, we were joking earlier that I don't think Christians talk enough that we believe God invented the orgasm. Like I think we really need to just, we need to just re-embrace there, there is a goodness and a reality to God and sex. And so let's open it up to what is God really saying about the opportunity of cohabitating under the vision of biblical covenant of marriage? So my story, because my mom had different guys in the house all the time, my, mom, my dad would disappear and be with women, and then I had my first sexual experience when I was 13, that when I realized that there's boundaries that I can live within, I actually felt safer. I don't know about you, but when I was just like living rampant sexually, I felt out of control. I was scared of like those practical things that you hear about in sex ed in like sixth grade, right? Like STDs, babies, things like that. But when I realized and saw like healthy marriages and healthy dating relationships, I was like, oh, thank God. Like, I, I can find something that's, that will help me thrive in myself. Like, this, it was like when I started seeing a biblical mandate, a biblical, like, 
stewardship of sexuality, I was like, I want that because I don't want what I've seen before. Does that make sense? And that's like, so I grew up Jewish. And in the Old Testament, so much of God's law was to set the Jews apart. Like, they had this, like, prophetic witness, which sounds really Christian to, like, explanation that they just, they just stood apart. Do you guys know people like that? Hopefully, you guys see people around you that stick out because of how they respond to things or how they live their lives, right? In the Old Testament, God set these people apart, one, because his hand was on them. They were called. They were chosen, right? But they were also supposed to live differently, and by them living, living differently, it pointed to Jesus. In the Old Testament, it pointed to God, Yahweh, right? So as a community, like your dating relationship can look different than your best friend's dating relationship, maybe who doesn't know Jesus. And that points to something else, right? Or when KP, my wife and I get in a fight, and my next door neighbor gets in a fight with his wife, and he's like drinking a beer in the garage and talking about divorce, I'm not doing that. Like I'm going to Trader Joe's and getting flowers. You know what I mean? For a good two minutes later. No, I'm just kidding. They're so sleepy, they're not with me. We're talking about sex and there's free Chick-fil-A soon. Does that make sense? Like it sets you apart and that's Old Testament. That's, that's now new, like because we're filled with the spirit, we're set apart to be a witness, to be salt and light, right? And that, you can be the salt and light with your sex. Do you know that? Like, if you have healthy sex, you will be salt and light. I am at the dinner with friends that don't know Jesus, and we talk about our sex life, and my sex life is salt and light to people because it's healthy. It's with my bride, and we enjoy it, you know? So it's set-apartness that so much is what you're called to, right? To be set apart. And I've talked too long. Madeline, I'd love for you to speak on how Jesus, we talked about Old Testament, but now New Testament, Jesus enters to kind of envision for us this idea of grace and covenant coming together as the model for how all behavior, but especially now sexual behavior, can be dealt with and handled. So I think what the enemy would love to do is for us to hear these conversations about, okay, being set apart, and this is what the Old Testament said, and feel shame and condemnation instead of the freedom and joy that God intends for his people. And when God has standards, it's not because he wants to hold people to some rule, it's because he genuinely wants the best for his kids. Like, if I was a little kid and about to run out into the street, the most loving thing my parent could do is yank me by the hand, hurt my fingers a little bit, but to keep me from getting hit by a car coming in the road. And so I think the reason that God has these standards is ultimately for love. And Dee mentioned this earlier with some of the other needs that can be fulfilled in other human relationships is we're all longing for we all want to be wanted, and the only being in the universe that can love us the way that we desire and need to be loved is God. And so marriage or great friendship or any, those are all glimpses of that, right? But it's only just a fragment of the perfect love that God gives us fully. So 
Um, to go back to Matt's question, um, if you haven't read the Gospels before, I highly encourage it. And look at the way that Jesus interacts with people that the world or um, religious culture deems as sinful, because usually Jesus is pretty harsh on the religious leaders for not seeing the sin in their own life. And all of us on this panel, we weren't picked because we have a perfect sexual history. I don't think any of us do. We're all broken. But because the grace of Jesus has radically changed our life. And if you look at uh, John 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well, or if you look at John 8, um, when the religious leaders bring the woman caught in adultery, the man isn't anywhere, but the woman is brought and shamed, and set, they asked him, because they're trying to kill him, and they ask, should we follow the law of the Old Testament and stone her to death? And what does Jesus do? Do you guys remember? I wish I knew what he was writing, but he knelt down. I'm not Steve Deneff, but he knelt down and wrote in the dirt. And he had this brilliant line. He said that the one without sin, please cast the first stone. And starting with the elders, and in our context, it's mostly 18 to 22, but there's wisdom in our elders. And the elders realized their sin first and put down their stones and went home. And pretty soon it was just Jesus and the woman, and Jesus asks, like, where, where are your accusers? And she's like, they're, they're gone. And Jesus says, neither do I accuse you. So Jesus saved her life, redeemed her from this shame, and then after all of this, he tells her, go and sin no more. Sometimes we put that first, but that's, that's actually the end. So I imagine not everyone here has a perfect history, and I think what God says is that he looks and he loves and he sets free, and then he says the truth. That's, that's beautiful. On, in a lot of ways, that's a great segue to maybe how you should be thinking about a big event coming up in a month, Thanksgiving. For many of us, this is a chance where you're going to sit around the table with family, maybe some friends, extended family you haven't seen, and you're going to get to hear updates about their life, things that maybe you don't approve of. Uh, I mean, I remember there's a Thanksgiving where someone in our family shared the news of they were cohabitating with someone uh, that they were not intending to get married to, but it was just kind of a thing, and they were intimate and kind of unashamedly brought that to the table on Thanksgiving. And so you can imagine that for many of us, this is not just going to be a theoretical thing, that there's going to be moments maybe in the next month you're sitting around and you've got to learn how to choose a gracious response to maybe hearing someone uh, who you might want to throw a stone at, but maybe have a different response. So panelists, in a quick, short 30 seconds of application, how would you approach someone at a dinner table, let's take Thanksgiving, who shares something about their life that you just maybe don't approve of? It's not uh, in line with your community standards, and you just realize, you know, they're living on their own terms. But how can you graciously respond when news like that is shared among friends, among family, kind of keeping that uh, passage of John in mind? I think it just starts with listening and loving well, you know, to say, hey, you're my cousin, you're my, you know, sister, you're my friend, whoever you are, and to say, I want to walk with you through this. You know, I'm not cutting you off. I want to be a part of your life, and I want to hear more about why you're doing this, and let's talk about it, and um, I'm not turning you away because of you doing something that I disagree with, but I'm pulling up a chair at the table with you to hear more. Yeah, there's a lot of things around the table 
these days that divide us. There's a lot of things that, that seek to really pull us apart. I mean, talk about community standards, but whether it's politics, whether it's views on certain candidates or the direction the country is going, all of these things pull us apart, right? Uh, the reality of life is that we'll spend a good chunk of our lives trying to love people that we disagree with. You might find yourself in a situation now where you get to surround yourself with a lot of people you agree with. The reality of life is that we're pretty much surrounded by people we probably don't agree with on things. And we have to learn how to love in disagreement while also maintaining um, what we believe is true um, and what we believe uh, you know, our convictions are, are telling us. So holding those things in tension, in love, not in bitterness, not in arrogance, but in love, I think is, is a big piece. And that question was phrased with you, know, you as the finger pointer. But I realize there's gonna be many of us, maybe at Thanksgiving or even now, you feel the fingers pointed at you, that you're the one who's made the mistake, you're the one carrying the sexual shame, the, the shame of the intimacy you've created with someone that you just realized, man, that was a mistake, and I wish I could take it back, but your life has been marked by those decisions and those choices, and so I want to flip the question. What pastoral advice would you give to someone who's maybe feeling the reality of um, sexual brokenness, sexual shame, feeling the burden of they're the one who people are looking at and pointing at? What kind of gospel word of... of um, affirmation do you have for them? Jesus, I can't talk about Jesus without crying. Jesus is so much better than anyone has ever preached about on the stage. And Jesus is so much better than any way I could answer this question. That you have not seen the depths of his love. You have not tested. You might think of the darkest thing you've ever done. The darkest thing you've done with someone, the darkest, weirdest thing you looked at, the whatever. And it does not in any way, like Christ is not cringing at it. He's not in the throne room wringing his hands trying to figure out how he's going to cover this one. If I can look at some of you in the eyes, I promise you that if you've stayed with someone if you live with someone right now, if you sent naked photos this morning to someone, you have not tested the depth of his love. I pinky swear, I will bet the farm. I have tested him, and he's like, nice try. Like, I have brought things up to Jesus, and I thought he was going to barf in his mouth. But kindly be like, mm, let's pray. Never, and you will never, ever, reach that point. It's unbelievable. It is the best news in the world. It's not good news. Good news is I'm going to Florida in a couple days. Like, that's awesome. Good news is my wife is making garlic bread with our pasta tonight. You know what I mean? The best news in the world is you will never reach the depths. You will never run out on his love. I pinky swear. So if you are cohabitating right now and you're going home and your dad's a pastor, that's probably some of your guys' situation, right? I promise you that Jesus would sit right next to you at that table and be proud of you. Now, would he talk to you about some stuff? Maybe, probably. But he talks to me about stuff this morning during my quiet time that I need to fix. But you will never reach the end of God's love. I promise you. 
for the rest of your life. I just want to say, too, you have the gift of being in community here. And it seems like the scariest thing in the world to let someone else in on what feels like the darkest part of what's inside you. And yet, I just want to challenge you to find someone in your life who you can speak openly with, who you can trust, who's a safe person to talk to about the questions that you have, the, hey, we did this, do you think that's too far? Or, hey, I'm wrestling with this, can you be accountable with me? Like, you guys, literally the people sitting next to you are people who, there's someone who you can trust, who you can talk to, and it's, I mean, you have to be so brave. But that is what changed my life and my understanding of how the Lord can help us through this, through these questions, because we all have them. But if we're not talking about them with each other, then we're wrestling alone, and that's when Satan wins, you know? So people like Madeline in my life who we've, you know, you just find someone who you can talk to. That's, yeah. that's my advice. Yeah. Before the panelists leave, I want them to maybe sit for a moment with all that we've discussed, even just sensing what the Spirit might be speaking to them about those in the room. And panelists, to ask you, what's one thing you hope the students leave these doors still questioning? Uh, themselves about, something you want them to bring uh, to the table with Jesus, to sit and to linger and to, to just listen about? What's one thing you think the students would be uh, better for if they left here considering? Yeah, I'll just hop right on and just reiterate what I just said, is to ask, ask Jesus to show you the person who you can talk to about this, and he'll show you someone. Uh, just know that Jesus believes in restoration, um, that Jesus wants us all to be whole, and not one of us probably feels whole at this moment for whatever reason, uh, but Jesus longs for us to be whole, and so how do we, how do we begin a journey of wholeness? How can we be, begin to get on that path towards we, where we, we know that we're, we're growing more and more whole? This is not what I originally thought when I saw this question, but what I want to share is that Jesus is the giver of joy, and he wants to give you the best life. And if somebody told me five years ago this is what my life would look like, I wouldn't believe them. But, and like Dee said, it's not whole. I'm not whole. I'm still learning. I'm still growing so much. I mess up every single day. But the amount of joy God has given me in places where I never would have expected it, it's all to his glory. I've had to learn the hard way, even recently, that God's no's mean that there's a better yes. Like his no's now means that there's a better yes. And that better yes might not be your preference, but if we believe in God's sovereignty and goodness, which I do, that his yes is better. And in our frustration, in waiting, like who here is like sitting here like, I'm kind of frustrated that this guy is telling me that I have to wait then, you know? Frustration is okay, but do the work to get to formation and be formed by it. When you run into something, you have two choices, frustration or formation. You can hang out in frustration for a little bit, but try to get to formation. Try to, try to see what, why, do, why are you so offended by this? Why is this hard? Why is this scary? 
and do work there instead of just saying in frustration and then throw your hands up and be like, I'm out, you know, forget this. So once you hit frustration, do the work to get to formation because his no now means there's a better yes on the other side. That's really good. So Asbury, we're going to start closing the service, but I want to invite you into uh, a prayer practice. And a lot of times it can seem like in chapel, in church services, we pray merely to transition. And I want to kind of put that to rest and say prayer is a, an invitation to receive. And so as we transition, if you want to go ahead and stand, I'm going to ask just uh, two of the panelists to pray, but it's going to be a prayer of blessing. And so if we all stand, so I know some of you don't like waving your hands, moving around, but I just want to invite you into a simple posture, two open hands out in front of you, because it already feels like this room is pretty heavy. I realize it's Monday, it's almost fall break, but this has not been an easy topic to even journey through as we consider the family members, the friends, the community, uh, maybe even you who have just wrestled with topics of cohabitation, sexuality, uh, promiscuity, just how none of this has left any of us unscathed. And so to open your hands and receive words of blessing from these people who are here to care about you, not to speak authority over you, but to, to offer a gospel message to you about receiving the goodness of God for all he has for you. So as the worship band begins to play, I just want to invite you to receive these words of affirmation and blessing from our panelists, and then we'll give them a hand as they go off stage. So let's pray together. Jesus, you are so kind to us, and so I praise you for creating each person in this room, Lord. Lord, I praise you that they are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that there is nothing, nothing in the entire world that they could ever do that would separate you from the, separate them from the love that you are pouring out upon them. God, I just pray a blessing that um, each person in this room would know the depth of your love for them so intimately, closer than their closest friend, closer than their closest lover, Lord, that you might be the one who loves them and knows them the best, and that you would reveal to them just the depth of that love. Oh God, we pray that this time is not an invitation to follow more rules. We pray that this time is not a chance to just double down on what we think is right. But, oh God, that this is an invitation to wholeness. That this is an invitation for you to come into our lives, for the Spirit to, to work in and through us, to find those gaps where we feel shame, where we feel pain, where we are still reeling from the wounds and the hurts that are not, that's not our fault. Oh God, our prayer is for wholeness. And we invite you, Jesus, to take our hand and to begin this walk towards a life that is whole and towards healing. Amen. We use these words, we use these words, oh God, to lead us forth. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Can we give a hand for our panelists?